Welcome to Live from Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 18, How Doctors Think with Camilo Kocha. I don't know if I told you this already, but my day job is currently in medical education research. I'm fascinated by the correspondences between philosophy and medicine. For instance, there's a certain innate violence in medical thinking, but at the same time this is the kind of thinking that allows us to live longer and healthier lives. Medicine is full of these kinds of paradoxes. That's why I was so happy when I met Camilo Cocha a few years ago, because he's a doctor who also studies philosophy. Camilo is a medical doctor from South Africa. Currently he works as a senior house officer at Letterkenny University Hospital Department of Hematology. He has a special interest in existentialist philosophy, German idealism and phenomenology. We published a paper together called Because We Care, a philosophical investigation into the spirit of medical education. We discussed that paper at length in another podcast, which I will link in the show notes. Camilo also published a book chapter with Sans Schaapkens called In Pursuit of Time, an inquiry into Kairos and reflection in medical practice and health professions education. Thank you for speaking with me. Yeah, that's not our first time. <laughs> no, we've had many conversations. So I know it's your holiday now, but uh, before your holiday, what does a normal day look like for you? Well, so um, I have done quite a few different medical jobs, as it were, um, uh, from emergency medicine, um, radiology, um, general practice, uh, clinical research and now um, I took a dive back from clinical research into um, clinical medicine. So I work at the Department of Hematology at Letterkenny University Hospital in Ireland. So it's a really busy job, um, mostly treating you know, really unwell patients with hematological diseases, which mostly comprises of um, different types of you know, blood cancers, leukemias, and lymphomas um, generally treated with some or other chemotherapy agents. So we work closely with the oncologists in a way, but we also, we fall sort of between oncology and medicine. Um, and uh, so, so day-to-day is, is managing patients with, with those sort of illnesses and disorders. Most of those patients, do they have any uh, chance of getting better? More and more. So, I mean, when I worked in South Africa um, before this, we would see quite a lot of of, of those sort of malignancies, and um, in a way, especially diseases like multiple myeloma. And um, we were, we were introduced to that in in South Africa. It was kind of a death sentence. There was only one one line of treatment, but it's just an exploding. Um, kind of uh, field so so yeah people get better and people stay better for longer now mm-hmm. um some of the diseases they they come and go you know they're not um they're not tumors that that we can get rid of completely but people live long lives with quite nasty illnesses 
are you able at the end of the day to um, just uh, let everything go? Uh, like if, if, for instance, a patient died or something went wrong? Well, you know, we're, we're here in Europe now. <laughs> um, patients don't, don't die quite as much. Um, so when I, I was in, I was in South Africa, we used to, so South Africa's history, um, of course is inseparable from, you know, colonialism, apartheid, or apartheid, depending on how you say it. And the third thing, South Africa's history is inseparable from is HIV. Mm -hmm. So the history of the recent history of South Africa is, is really a medical history um, because so much of the country died from, from HIV. So, and we're still seeing the effects of that. So when it comes to deaths, that was something we would, uh, that was routine for us. I think I remember when I was an intern, we would sign off on two or three deaths every night, some nights. So it's something that, in a way, um, you learn to let go at the end of the day. And how how come so many people died in South Africa of HIV when there it's perfectly treatable now? I mean, if <laughs> if we had the answer to that question, we were, we wouldn't be um, we wouldn't be doing it. But it, so there's a lot of things that that happen in South Africa. So. I know everyone's seen the Dallas Buyers Club, and uh, and, and so has an inkling of of the you know the 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 target drug in that movie is a is a zidovudine AZT, and it was given on its own to treat uh, HIV, and it worked sometimes. It had horrible side effects, and um, and the next the next treatment that came out was nevirapine, which was safe to use in children. Um, and due to some very weird situation, um, there was a, a bit of Russian misinformation that was going around that HIV does not cause AIDS. So the progression of the syndrome uh, from the virus was not correlated. And our president, around 19, when was it, 1998, 1999, that, that sort of time, he um, kind of fell prey to this. And he was an economist and he was trained in Russia. And he, he said that, look, yes, what's, what's, uh, what's factually true is that people with HIV seem to progress to AIDS much faster if um, they're eating unhealthily, they're poor, they're, uh, which was the information he had at the time. And so he absolutely flatly refused to roll out antiretrovirals. So we only had antiretroviral rollout sort of five to 10 years after most Western, most Western countries. And um, by that time, I think about 20% of the population was affected by it. So what's what's interesting is, is the, the sexual practice of communities that are more affected by HIV. And there was obviously a, quite a lot of propaganda around that it was, you know, a, a kind of punishment for sexual promiscuity. But 
uh, and and that Africans were more sexually promiscuous than than white uh, Westerners. But while depends what you mean by promiscuity, because if you look at the absolute amount of sexual partners between the racial groups, they're pretty much the same. But um, white Westerners tend to have serial monogamy, whereas you know black Africans tend to have multiple partners at the same time, but for longer periods. So that kind of sexual practice led to huge HIV numbers, and we're still not catching up. So, um, you know, ARVs, we're trying to reach millions and millions of people. I think it's about something absurd, like 14% of the population or 11% of the population that's affected by HIV. So it's massive, massive amounts of numbers, and obviously it keeps spreading. So um, we still have people, people dying. We still have people who can't access medication because they can't transport to clinics or um, they prefer to use um, uh, sort of uh, witch doctors to treat the disease. Um, I mean, I'm no expert in this uh, and they are experts in this. So um, the, the problem is so, <laughs> so uh, multifaceted at the moment because of the, just the sheer quantity of people affected. Um, that that's what we were stuck with. Um, so when I joined, when I joined medicine, it was in, when did I graduate? 20, 2016 was my first year. Um, things had already got a lot better, but before then, sort of around 2000 to 2005, to around that, you know, that was, it was complete chaos. It was absolute, um, you know, people dying in, in huge numbers of curable uh, infections in say a person with a normal immune system, but things that we couldn't really do anything about if, if you have uh, advanced HIV. In the beginning, you connected this to some Russian information in the 1990s, I guess? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure about that, but um, I, I know that a lot of the post-Cold War um, kind of information wars that were going on at the time um, included a lot of, uh, you know, Russia, Russian intelligence versus CIA, um, uh, you know, disinformation campaigns. And um, whether those were targeted at the enemy or their own people to make them believe that, you know, where the enemy was, the enemy was the decadent West or the enemy was the uh, oppressive Russians, I'm not sure. But I know that the connection between South Africa and Russia is quite strong um, because of the communist support of the African National Congress during apartheid. And these things kind of leak into each other. And um, the, the HIV does not cause AIDS. Um, um, how do we say? Yeah, misinformation was, was quite quite a Russian idea at the time. Um, I'm, I'm, not I'm not sure myself how precisely it went, but um, I, 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 was, I was reading quite a bit on it at the time, and it seems like there's quite a strong, a strong link there. All right, so it sounds like you're spending your days quite usefully if you're taking care of uh, uh, 
people who are suffering with cancer and other types of uh, diseases. So do you, do you have any time for philosophy? Why would you spend time on philosophy at all? Um, you're right. I have less time now than I did. Um, I think I think when I chose to start doing medicine, I I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I think I was quite quite stuck, and I, I I remember it quite vividly in in you know my final years at school, not knowing what to do, and everyone had a sort of idea that they were going to study this or that. Um, and I did a one of those. Um, aptitude tests and they told me to become a hotel manager or politician <laughs> hotel manager or politician yeah yeah well i guess those yeah you need the same kind of qualities for those <laughs> um so i was uh you know that that wasn't particularly helpful to me so um my sister's a doctor and i i thought you know it's a it's a great great and uh, noble profession um, but I always wanted to study philosophy. I think I started philosophy, reading philosophy when I was around 14 or 15. Um, and I didn't really understand it. That's but, quite uh, young. How, how did you start? Did someone well, uh, give you a book or? Well, my father, my father read uh, a lot of philosophy. He was mm -hmm. a very, he was very interested in Nietzsche. And, um, and of course, trying to understand Nietzsche without reading anything is almost impossible. Um, so I, I just knew that at that time that Nietzsche had a lot of issues with someone called Plato. So I um, borrowed a book from the library on Plato and, and it, it was really understandable in some way because, yeah. it, it, you know, at the end of the day, Socrates is asking really simple questions. You know, well, what's what's justice? You know, what's truth? Uh, um, you know, what's what is love? Very simple questions, and no one seems to ever have the answer. Least of all, you know, Socrates, um, who just has more questions. And I think, I think I slowly started understanding more and more um, as I got older. And um, and I thought, you know, do I want to do medicine or do I want to do philosophy? And that was that was my question, you know, on the precipice of deciding. And uh, my father just said to me, you know, you can do medicine, and if you do medicine, you can do medicine and philosophy. If you do philosophy, you can't do philosophy and medicine. It's a lot more difficult. Um, which isn't strictly speaking true. If anyone out there is a philosopher listening and wants to do medicine, it's been done the other way around. But um, I, I understood where he was coming from and then I just leapt into medicine. So, you know, when I'm talking about how I chose um, to do medicine, it's it's very uninspiring. You know, I remember getting to to medical school and being in, in the first the first year and everyone's nervous around me. And they kind of they kind of cheat us up, you know. They were like, "This is a hard course. Uh, it's very difficult. It's very complicated. A lot of people fail." Um, but and uh, you know, once you've graduated, it only gets worse. <laughs> um, you know, it only gets more difficult before it gets easier. And uh, I just remember, you know, everyone kind of apprehensive, and then the kind of cathartic break at the end of this 
talk was that, you know, but you've all, you know, medicine is a calling, you know, it's something that speaks from deep within you. Um, and I, I, I didn't resonate with that. I, I didn't choose medicine because of any deep kind of commitment I had. I chose it because I was genuinely curious more than anything. Um, so I felt like I was always a bit of an outsider to this, like being, you know, being a doctor, you know, wanting to be a doctor, this desire. I never really had that. I was just genuinely curious. So um, all through my studies, I kind of had in the back of my mind, you know, I need to, I want to combine this philosophical thinking with, with medicine. And, uh, and I was having such a horrible time in my final two years of medicine, um, very lonely and unbelievably, you know, stressed and under pressure. And I sort of actually was thinking, you know, let me give up on this, this stupid medical um, idea, you know, let me get out of this because I was looking at, at stressed doctors around me, you know, lots of divorces, um, uh, lots of, you know, people not seeing their families uh, because they're at work all the time. And, and then I really started to try and commit to philosophy. So I started researching, trying to develop a thesis to try and apply um, for a program that could get me out of medicine and into academia. Um, and then when I started, uh, when I started working in clinical practice rather than as a student in clinical medicine, I realized that it's, you know, it's, it's actually, a, it's fascinating. Working with people is, is, you know, there's nothing like it. And because you, well, for one thing, you, you actually have a lot more power as a doctor than doctors tend to acknowledge. Um, you know, you're really, you're really like, uh, like a, trying to decipher a code from the patient's symptoms and signs and uh, investigations, you're really, you know, interpreting this code. And then when you pass it back onto the patient, you know, they, they can, can completely understand what they've been experiencing in terms of, you know, simple um, kind of causal events. You know, you, you have diabetes, there's lots of sugar in your blood. The bacteria like to eat the sugar and that's why you have a pneumonia. That's, that's, you know, you can kind of decrypt this person that's slowly been getting more and more short of breath for the last six days and is now very sick. Um, and you can tell them that, yes, it's going to take some time for you to get better. And it, it's it, to, to a, a population in South Africa where the education is, is really, really low, um, that you can seem like a magician. And it is, it, it's very captivating to be in that position. So I really started to enjoy medicine in that way. Um, and uh, also was a very arrogant uh, young doctor. And, uh, and I, had to, I, I had to learn the hard way how not to be an arrogant doctor through you know, some mistakes that were really, um, you know, really un unfortunate um, and, uh, as an intern. And, uh, and that's when I really started to um, think this, this philosophical task wasn't a kind of you know, extraneous ex escape from medicine, but, but that philosophy was really necessary to understand medicine itself. You know, um, 
you know, what is the position of the doctor? You know, where do all these questions come from? And why don't doctors seem to have any answers for them? And so, you know, that was, that was kind of one of the, the serious questions I started asking. And, um, and, and I, I found, uh, I found some answers and in, in the, um, in the, in, in the academic journals, people who had the same questions as me, but mostly coming from outside medicine, mostly people who had kind of, um, you know, specifically philosophical viewpoints on concepts of health or concepts of disease or concepts of, you know, like Foucault and biopower. And then I thought, well, what would it be like to look from the inside? And so that's, that's kind of what I've been doing and kind of what led, led up to us, us meeting in, a, in a, that fateful online course. So first they were kind of like parallel worlds, philosophy yeah, and medicine. And then you found out from your practice that some, some questions that you had were also um, uh, like good candidates for philosophical uh, approaches. What, can you just say one more time, what, what kind of questions are you thinking about? Because it's, it seems to me that there's even this, the CANMATs, they call it, CANMAT roles. Do you know them? No. I don't know if they can list them all, but it's basically uh, a diagram of all the roles that the doctor should play. So at the center is uh, obviously medical experts. Then there's communicator, uh, scholar, yeah, and a bunch of other ones. You can <laughs> yeah. look them up, but uh, uh, a philosopher isn't in there. <laughs> oh, and nor should it be. <laughs> so let me let me make my question more specific. What um, if you think about uh, doctors, they need to, of course, uh, they need to be able to diagnose diseases. They need to be able to do like the physical tasks that you need to do, like operating, or uh, you need to uh, be able to speak with people, to listen to them, like have some communication uh, skills, to, to put it that way. So where does philosophy come in there? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's almost the, the perfect way to ask the question. And I think, um, I think it's perfect because that's exactly what, how a doctor would ask it, because a doctor would look at all these, these things, you know, these, these concrete to them, concrete um, tasks that they need to complete every day. You know, I need to make the diagnosis. I need to make the treatment plan. I need to communicate. Um, and in a way, once you've, set all those tasks in place you know what is outside this how how can philosophy enter why why the need for philosophy um, and ultimately that's um that's the interesting question because philosophy what it comes and does is it kind of undermines all those tasks you know what you know why why do you why do you say you need to be a communicator Right, you know, obviously doctors talk a lot, mm -hmm. but surely communication, you know, includes um, diagnosis because you're already forming a language when you're making a diagnosis. That's really what you're doing. Um, so when you're formulating a diagnosis, you're really creating a sort of mathematical problem in a way. And you know, a, you know, a plus b tends to equal C and can also include all these other things. Um, 
And, and that's how we think about it. You know, in medicine, we're like, oh, great. We have uh, this sign and this symptom yeah. and, and it equals this disease. Uh, so in some way, that is a language. You know, that is the creation, that is a communication of a language. But when you really enter clini clinical medicine, you find that the logic is kind of different and that we communicate a different, in a different way. And um, we include within these kind of positive signs and symptoms, we include these incredibly interesting and negative assertions. So for instance, this patient is a, a patient with something rare, an aspergilloma or um, a, um, a pulmonary abscess and that is not diabetic. So, you know, we'd expect this in a diabetic person, this person is not diabetic. So immediately you're in this kind of a different realm of language, which is, um, which is, includes negatives, which is not how we're really taught um, in medical school. In, in the beginning, you know, you're expecting a lot of ah, this plus this equals this, but it's really this plus the negative of the, the, the negation of this this negative. So you're paying you're paying attention to what is not there. Yeah. For instance, you would say, okay, um, I see this patient with uh, symptom A, and if it would be uh, I don't know diabetes, mm -hmm. I would also expect to see symptom symptom B but I don't see symptom B. So maybe it's the ne next one on the list. It's kind of a logical reasoning, diagnostic reasoning. Mm. I'm, I'm giving a, a workshop tomorrow on abductive reasoning, but that's uh, perhaps for another time, but you're using induction, uh, deduction. Uh, you're using the rules that you know of medicine, like people with uh, uh, blood pressure over this amount have a higher risk of this disease so if you see that uh, blood pressure in combination with this other symptom then they might have this so you might uh, i don't know in this case try first some paracetamol yeah or take this other test like uh, okay if their blood pressure is like this and this okay maybe we need to uh, do a brain scan or something so you're kind of it's kind of a way of reasoning right and you're communicating with the patient yeah you're you're formulating it in in a way that that kind of um in in a way i was always expecting medicine to be a bit more scientific that you would you would collect all the evidence and come to a diagnosis but really, you're in some ways you're you're presupposing a diagnosis. You're saying, ah, you know, this patient is is very short of breath, um, and they have very swollen feet. They probably have some degree of, you know, their heart is involved, and this is uh, some some heart failure, you know, in a broad category of disease. And so um, you you work from there and say. Okay, let's let's come to let's search for the evidence to to group all these things together so I can prove that that is the case. Um, naturally, the secondary thinking is you know we need to make sure it's nothing else as well uh, for safety reasons. So that sort of that 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 kind of comes afterwards. Um, and if you have a patient with a headache, you could prescribe paracetamol and uh, they could get rid of their headache but what if there's they have a brain tumor or whatever uh, yeah, causing it you don't want to just give the paracetamol when maybe there's an underlying other thing that uh, that you don't see yeah and, and the kind of thinking that would get you there is well say 
this this patient's um, headache is 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 not a normal headache. It just doesn't seem like all the other headaches I've seen, yep. and and or they're coming back for this headache over and over again. You know, maybe it's worth doing a scan. So so it's the the logic in medicine is is not scientific. I think that's the point I was made. It's not a classical scientific. Um, formal logic, trying to gather all the information, because sometimes, you know, you need to work with what investigations are available. You can't just MRI every patient with a headache. Otherwise, you just never have space on the MRI machine. So, um, you know, there's, there's, this, uh, there's this very interesting logic at play in medicine. Um, and it's, it's passed down from senior to junior um, and is very particular to each discipline. So the, the logic of a surgeon is very diff different to a logic of a, an orthopedic surgeon, which is very different to a logic of an oncologist, which is, um, you know, it, it completely different from the logic of a pathologist, you know, a pathologist sitting in a, in a lab looking at a microscope thinks completely differently to an orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, you know, they're, they're focused on the same thing which is you know diagnosis treatment and and um follow-up you know making sure that this person does get better um and so what was what was really you know the, the, this part of the diagnostic thinking was was really i I'm, I'm not i'm not particularly interested in in the in the um the thinking that leads to that leads to it and how precisely the language is formulated. I'm not a linguist. I'm, I'm not, uh, I haven't studied much philosophy of language, but I think that's what really opened up medicine to, to for me to ask, you know, philosophical questions. Ultimately, mm. I think these are philosophical questions. You know, how is it, how is it that the logic of medicine works? Um, but what really interested me is, is how medicine tended to exclude certain considerations and why, why particularly those? Um, so for instance, <laughs> um, we had, you know, obviously very tragic uh, cases of, of um, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. Um, and these cases tend to come from patients who take sort of a short course of their treatment and then stop taking their, their medication for whatever reason. So we, we have a lot of tuberculosis because of our HIV issue. And, um, and so they tend to go hand in hand. Now, when we would see a multi-drug resistant TB, we would, you know, we had a lot of uh, treatment options available, but it was very easy to start someone on multi-drug resistant TB therapy. It's, you know, seven different drugs. So I can't remember what the eight different drugs, including an injection that needs to be taken every day. And the question of why this person didn't take their medication, you know, always came up, you know, they would either be too poor to get to the clinic um, or there was too much violence in the area that they worked or lived um, so that they couldn't get to the, the clinic. Some of them were working jobs and they, they, it would take a whole day to sit for their medication um, uh, every month and they, they couldn't get more, you know, that amount of leave per year. They could only go every second month. Um, 
so it was these, you know, obviously drugs, uh, you know, everywhere. If you're on drugs, you're probably not taking your medication. But the, the point is that these, and especially in the junior doctors, this is not amongst the consultants, the more experienced consultants knew how to kind of tackle these, these things. But in general, the doctors would tend to focus on what's happening inside the hospital. So very meticulously noting, you know, exactly what's happening to the kidney function and precisely how the TB is responding and, you know, exactly all these very particular things about the tuberculosis. But it was almost impossible to consider, you know, what about the, these social determinants, you know, because at the end of the day, the doctors didn't have control over that. And so that, that was fascinating for me, you know, what is included in medical thinking? What do we tend to focus on? And why are all these really, you know, sometimes crucial things kind of excluded? Um, and uh, and I, I think that's what really started asking the question that, that led up to us, us meeting, you know, what, what, what are things we call care? Why is that question excluded? We seem to focus on health um, and we completely exclude this thing that we call care. We sort of assume we know what it means, but we don't make that assumption about health. We're, we're intensely focused on what health means, you know, but why, why do we exclude the question of care? Yeah, so the, the question of health, uh, that's one of the things that philosophers do discuss a lot, right? Uh, in, in conjunction with uh, medicine. So is health just the absence of uh, disease or uh, there are some definitions of health that almost sound like enlightenment, like you feel good, you have a great, <laughs> you're functioning, everything like that. And where's, where's the boundary between, for instance, someone with chronic pain who somehow found a way to live with that? Um, is that person uh, ill or not? Is that person sick or not? So there are all these discussions, uh, which, you know, is uh, maybe for another time to discuss. But the question, what what is health? Like, I'm thinking back about what you said about Socrates. What is love? What is justice? Well, what is health? That could be one question. What does it mean to be healthy? Uh, is that only physically? Does it also include your uh, mental uh, capacities, your environment and everything? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's essentially a, the modern philosophical question is ultimately a hermeneutic one. You know, what, what, is it that, what is it that you mean when you say X? Um, yeah. and, and what's, uh, you know, what that, what that includes is, you know, what, are, what is all the implicit knowledge contained in this concept? And how, and the philosophical task is to make all that explicit. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I, you know, when it comes to, to the question of health, as you say, it's, it's, it's massive. Um, but is it, is it, is it negative? I, I think that's important. Is, is it a negative? Are you healthy um, when you're not sick? Yeah. Like that. Or, yeah. or like the WHO um, wants us to think, is, is it's a complete um, mental, physical, social sense of well-being. Um, which is, you know, that's a very high bar. <laughs> yeah. Can you be differently abled and healthy? Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. So 
sorry, I just want to go a little bit back because just to make sure we follow, I follow. <laughs> uh, so I ask you, so what is, uh, what is philosophy in addition to all those other, um, actually I, I will share it also, but I can share with you now the CanMath rose. Oh, okay. So here we have it. So it's like a flower rose. Uh, mm -hmm. What's supposed to be what what roles should the doctor play? And it's used in medical education. Uh, when you teach doctors to be doctors, you should address all of these uh, issues. And in the center, there's medical ex uh, expert. Then you also need to be a communicator, uh, talk to patient, collaborator, because you're you know work with your colleagues and with maybe. Uh, societal institutions, a leader, um, not sure what that means, but okay, a health advocate. So, uh, well, in the case of HIV or something, it's it's clear that you need to be a health advocate as well. Uh, a scholar, you need to uh, find out the scientific literature, uh, the, the evidence for what's going on. Professional, which uh, is uh, very fake, but you need to be professional. That's all of them. So then, then you said, okay, you said that medical uh, diagnostic reasoning or medicine is not necessarily scientific. I think so clinical research, like if you're, there are lots of people working on treatments for cancer, we can agree that's scientific, right? And the, they're working in a laboratory, they're performing experiments, they're trying to get insights into the mechanisms behind, in this case, cancer, trying to find a cure, something like that. Yeah, I mean, just just from personal experience, that it's quite jarring to go from uh, clinical medicine to research. The the shift in mindset is is you know is is substantial. Is and and that that shift in mindset is is really present in the ethical problems that medical research poses. You know, it's, I, I think I was saying a, a, a while back that really some of the most horrendous parts of human history have been. Um, uh, medical research, obviously, from the, the concentration camps, famously in, in in Nazi Germany, but even even the the ones that are understated, like in in mm. Japan, the medical experiments uh, in in southern China, um, I mean, brutal and uh, unthinking. But uh, in in the United States, most interestingly, perhaps I think the Tuskegee experiment. Um, which is famously the observational study of, of syphilis, which how it, the, the study of how syphilis progresses if it's left untreated, which started out um, with people not knowing the cure for syphilis. But as soon as the, the uh, cure became widely available in, in the form of penicillin, um, they, they, didn't, they didn't amend the trial. There was no, no change. Hmm. Um, and so they kept observing people with syphilis uh, to see what would happen, even though they could have uh, given them a cure. Yes. So, so that when the trial started, there was no cure, or at least the cure wasn't widely available. But it, it, it became apparent in the midst of the trial, because it was a long-standing experiment, so lasting many years, that, that you could cure syphilis. And no one thought to... Um, to to tell these people that we can cure the disease. Now, it's you know in in the training that we got, they actually fairly made it quite clear 
that it wasn't a malicious thing. It wasn't that the the doctors on the trial um, weren't uh, were, were malicious, you know, trying to actively harm these people, but it was just this complete thoughtlessness, you know, absolute not considering the fact that it might be ethical to treat treat this treatable condition instead of letting people die from it. Um, now, why did that happen? Is 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 one question. Um, we we know what 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 we did to stop it happening again. You know, there's very strict, um, very very strict uh, ethics committees. Um, got you know, you know, looking at uh, looking out for this particular thing. But why why in science in the scientific approach to medicine why was this neglected in doctors people who would otherwise be trying to treat illnesses were suddenly um, not they forgot mm. <laughs> they, they they were trained as doctors they were doing experiments and suddenly they forgot to treat the illness that they knew they could treat um, so you know what how did this happen what 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 was it that was present in the thinking that just allowed for such thoughtlessness. You know, why, why, were, why were the doctors on this trial able to exclude the whole being a doctor part <laughs> and were simply focusing on the experiment? Um, and and that, should be, that should be really worrying, very, very worrying that, that in, in medical thinking, we are able to exclude the whole reason we're there and and that 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 is a philosophical question for me to uncover what is implicit in medical thinking that can allow for this to happen um so i say i say what's 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 interesting is is um what's what's outside that's that's you know what is outside the the thoughts of a doctor every day what what are they um either consciously or unconsciously excluding in order for this process, this, um, these categories of medical thought to, to continue. So the, the reason they can think medically at all, the reason they can uh, learn in medical school how to diagnose patients and then the patients comes into their consultation room and they can do all that, it's based on something it's so in this case you refer to a historical component like how did we get this knowledge about the human body or very simply sometimes by cutting uh, people open but of course if you only uh, if you want to study the brain and you rely on uh, there's an ethical component as well but you rely on people who are already deceased uh, often these were crim criminals or others um, it's a, I heard a story that they refer to the brain as gray matter because they used to study it on dead people. I'm not sure. And then when you're alive, because the blood is there, it has another color. Anyway, so if you want to study how a, a living human being is functioning, you need to kind of incur a kind of violence to this person, even like uh, maybe violence is not the right word, but even, you know, what a surgeon does is cutting people open. Well, if I would do that, <laughs> I would I would be in jail. 
I think surgeons joke about this, right? Like, uh, yeah, I studied surgery because it's the only uh, legal way to cut people. Anyway, this is one example of how scientific knowledge that we take for granted today, for instance, about syphilis or, or anything else, is also based on a lot of violation of human dignity in, uh, in that sense. I think, I think that's, that's a really fascinating point. And, and um, that's, that's a huge part of, of, of what, what, I was, what I was thinking at the time. You know, what, what, is, what is left out? You know, what, what do we miss out? And um, I came across, uh, you know, a writing of, of a, a gentleman in you know, University of Leeds, I, I think, uh, I forget his name, but really, you know, it was a, it was a challenge um, to medicine as a whole. And, um, you know, why are people, you know, why, why are we losing so much empathy in our medical students? So why are doctors becoming less and less empathetic the more they yeah they and by the way this system. is this there's been a lot of research about this right about uh, empathy motivation things like that in oh, doctors absolutely. yeah and and many st studies conclude that empathy declines apart from how you would measure empathy but okay yeah I, of course i mean but uh, it's it's kind of secondary to me that um uh how you would measure empathy because obviously as, as in your, I mean, brilliant article that, that it, of course, empathy is, has some kind of internal component. And the more we try and investigate the external appearances of the internal experience, the more we can produce performative, um, you know, uh, behavior, which is, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and in, interested in medical education, um, Mario will put his uh, fascinating article in, in the description. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of violence. Um, there's a kind of violence to it. But what was more interesting for me was, you know, we're, we're both quite interested in Hannah Arendt. Um, and she tends to get a lot of, uh, uh, a, a little bit of shtick <laughs> amongst philosophers, I've noticed. But, you know, when she described the banality of evil, she was describing something quite particular, which was, was the kind of um, bureaucratization of cruelty in a way, the kind of that you could, you could perform something heinous um, and, not, uh, and, and, and not have any internal experience of, of doing something evil, you know, not having to be particularly brainwashed, but that you could just participate passively in, yeah. in evil. Just to um, summarize very quickly for people who, who are, I mean, most people have heard it probably, but so she was covering the Eichmann trials, who was one of the, let's say, architects uh, behind the Holocaust. Yeah, he was, he was in charge of transportation. So the, yeah. the, the trains. Yeah. And there's a the really great film. I think it's called just Hannah Arendt, which uh, shows this part. It's I really recommend it. But it shows how in that, that was right after the Second World War. So the prevailing discourse was this is like the epitome, epitome of evil. Uh, Hitler was already dead, but, but someone like Eichmann, that's the devil himself. So in the way that she covered the trials and what she read, wrote about it later, she said, well, it's not so much uh, that he's evil in the sense of like a devil or something like that. It's, it's that he's thoughtless. So yes. he doesn't think. He, uh, she called, she used this word. I think Amtsprache comes from her. It's like, 
Ansprache is like bureaucratic language. Um, just like a link, or maybe it's not appropriate, but anyway, uh, a link to scientific research. If you're doing an experiment, you speak about uh, uh, samples and, and uh, uh, data and, and all that. Uh, it's a way of kind of a technical way of speaking about it. So Eichmann, she said something Well, he was just concerned with having the trains run on time and how many units can you can you uh, pack in one train and all that um and by speaking it by using unit by de denying the humanity of in this case uh, jewish people and, and gypsies and other people he was able to just do it without uh, not not because he hated Jews or something. Maybe he did. I don't know. But in that case, it wasn't even relevant because he was doing calculations. He was speaking about units. Uh, he was not responsible because he was just following all the orders. And this was just the system. Yeah, I, I, perfect. I mean, that's exactly that's exactly what I'm saying. And just just if someone's um, listening and trying to tie together the threads. I don't think I'm really saying um, that, you know, medicine is evil, you know, or that there's something diabolical, you know, bureaucratically evil about medicine. But it was, it, the interest was just that, um, why do doctors have a capacity for, for this? What, where does it lie? And how does it take a normal person and strip it of its empathy? You know, for, for someone like, um, oh, I forget his name, Levinas, you know, for, for living us, the basis of an ethical decision, you know, the other, you know, I, I look into the eye of the other and the other says, thou shalt not kill. You know, that's that's for um, for living us, the basis of, 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 um, of any ethical decision. You know, that's where he kind of um, uh, begins. My knowledge of living us is a bit shallow, I'll, I'll grant that, but, um, you know how how is it that actually in in medicine we 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 bypass that we really do we we do strip people down to a kind of set of functioning organs you know yeah. we strip them down to a disease and in some sense it is humiliating for them as you said earlier it, it it's humiliating in the sense that uh, it reminds us that we're finite um now to to secondarily bureaucratize that to just completely you know, engage with that, say, this is the, the process of medicine is not a humiliating process to, to be um, afflicted by a disease is, is, you know, it's secondary, it's uh, complete, it's almost irrelevant to the medical process, because the medical process uh, disregards that, because it needs to, it needs to continue to efficiently diagnose the disease to focus on its, you know, physical characteristics, um, to uh, you know, ascertain precisely the extent of it and and how it is to progress. That's the focus of medicine. And um, this kind of um, this uh, any focus on something like an experience of it or um, how how to relate to it on a personal level or how to relate to a person on a person uh, the the you know the patient on a personal level. We can simply exclude that. Yeah. Um, you know so you need to do both both things as a doctor so you you need to relate to the patient as as a human being a person who is suffering 
but the, at the same time, I mean, your your daily job is is has to do with giving people chemotherapy, which is not a nice experience. So you're doing you're performing actions that will make people, let's say, I'm using quotes marks now, uh, sick. Mm. Uh, in order for them to yeah, in order for them to uh, cure the cancer, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you're doing that to a, to a human being, so you need to yeah have the like the scientific let's call it the scientific reasoning logical reasoning and you also need to the empathy yeah but uh, you know it's it's just it's just you know the, the question for me was really so if if you're a person on the street and you see a child fall down and and smack its teeth on the ground and you see blood in their mouth you're not, uh, no human being would look at that child and not be able to feel some kind of pain or revulsion or horror or feel upset, uh, even if they can't put a, put a word to that emotion um, and want to help the child. So that's, you know, that, that's always the image I have because I, I remember seeing that on a, on a street corner mm. um, and I just remember everyone around me was crying and the kid was, you know, crying a little bit, had a bit of blood in its mouth and a chipped tooth, but everyone was so horrified to see this, this child, you know, in pain. Um, and then when you, when you get into medicine, that, that side completely disappears. We, we don't have to tell people on the side of the street, you know, did you see that child? Uh, did you relate to it as a human being? You know, <laughs> we don't have to do that on the, on the street with, with, with people. But when we're in medical education, we suddenly have to remind our medical students, you know, don't forget to see this as a human being. Um, yeah. But I was asking you before, do you, you know, at the end of the day, do you take your experiences home? But how, how many patients do you see an hour on average? Oh, absolutely. So no, not, not, not too many. So in this, this job, we, you know, where I'm currently working with, it's maybe see two, three patients an hour. It's, it's slow, difficult work. But when I was when I was working back in South Africa, I would be seeing maybe six patients an hour. Yeah, for so there's like dozens of patients every day. If you would have this reaction that you like this uh, to to a child falling with every patient, uh, I mean, I don't think you could uh, do that job for very long. Yeah, I, th I think that's the that's the, the the kind of classical argument, you know, is is that empathy is. Um, is kind of um, you know it's it's a it's a luxury in in a way you know the the kind of re really relating to a person on a deep level is, is a luxury because you know not everyone has the time and energy to afford um, to to which I would argue you know yes of course but we then have to intellectually engage with everything that would be missing and. Um, that, that we would miss instead of engaging on an emotional level we would have to engage with those same things you know that same you know relating to the other person understanding their suffering we'd have to still engage with them on an intellectual level and that seems to be missing in medicine there seems to be no pursuit of that we we integrate you know we um we engage um very intellectually with the process of disease and the, the nature of the disease but we would not be able to engage intellectually with you know the the nature of the suffering or um 
the the nature of the process that that say brought the, the social process that brought this patient to be where they are and you know that's kind of excluded from the intellectual uh training of doctors so um you're right if we can't engage it emotionally we we need to argue and um, the importance of that same kind of paradigm in on an intellectual level okay so let me just make some connections with what you just said in, in some earlier episodes because it seems to me there's i don't know if you can call it two different ways of thinking at play like one is like a scientific uh, way looking at the patient also as a body almost like how you describe it uh, in south africa a patient would come in uh, and you can see that that uh, there are all sorts of social conditions that are at play they can take a day of work uh, for their take to take their medication but when they come came to one of your colleagues it will be like you take a car into the shop and they just open it and they look you know what can i see in the in the car so that's one way of thinking that is actually behind the success of medicine probably and we human beings live much longer than they did before uh, for a large part also because of this and the other side is relating to another person as really a person but then you wouldn't cut another person you wouldn't give them something that would make them sick and so that has advantages and it also has uh, disadvantages and it reminded me first of all of i think we talked about this a long time ago about uh, adorno saying that the same kind of thinking that allows you to take distance from another person which is necessary uh, to survive sometimes is also the kind of thinking that led in his case he was speaking about the holocaust so he was struggling with that he was struggling with this horrible thing happened we're traumatized he was traumatized because he was a survivor as well but then if you don't take distance you're in it all the time you can't live your life but if you have a kind of thinking that allows you to take a distance so you can you know have have a more analytical grasp of it then that is also the kind of thinking that that leads to like experiments and everything because you don't see people as people anymore and the other connection was to the pharmacon that we spoke about uh, at least with uh, daniel ross the are you familiar with the pharmacon the pharmacola it's it's a concept that the the i think it started with socrates or plato saying that writing you know makes you remember things but it also makes you forget things so it's double-sided mm -hmm. the thing that makes you you want to cure a patient because you care about that patient but the kind of thinking that helps you cure that patient also makes you forget that it is a patient sometimes so yeah anyway so these are just some connections that came up to two previous episodes so and um, we met what is it now like two or three years ago i think in uh, uh yeah it must have been right right just as the lockdowns began yeah 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 and uh, that's another connection by the way because it was in, in a course by justin murphy and uh, johannes niederhauser from uh, episode two and uh, that's where you you uh gave a presentation that that really uh, triggered something in me about yeah some of the things you've talked about already 
Yeah. So can you speak a little bit about that? Where, what were you thinking at the time? What were you occupied with at the time? Yeah, I, I think um, that that course was fascinating. Um, yeah. Was was about Heidegger and Deleuze. Heidegger and Deleuze and technology, um, mostly mostly focusing on you know what's the nature of technology, um, and I think what was particularly interesting for me was I just just really started um, taking Heidegger quite seriously, and I just finished I think my first reading of Being in Time, um, which was an absolute struggle. Um, but I think what was fascinating there was, was this, this view on technology, not as some sort of, you know, embodied in kind of objects, you know, like we all think of technology, specifically computers, you know, laptops, uh, um, cell phones, you know, the internet kind of, but really as a, as a, as a way of thinking um, that 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 takes takes uh, um, you know like he famously writes you know that that the same rhyme that Rilke wrote poems about is now uh, a way of producing power in the form of a hydroelectric plant. It's kind of something happens before the appearance of the thing. Um, the technological item that requires you to see um, a certain, um, how do I say, a certain phenomena as a standing reserve, as something that that is uh, available, you know, present at hand, something that's that's available for use. So the river is not just something to enjoy and to write poems about, but it becomes a, a source of power that powers a generator, etc. Yeah. So, so, so in essence, what 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 I the, the thinking that that was was getting me was, you know, why is it that everything that we we do or for it to be real in a way, for it to be in medicine in medical practice, for something to be real, for something to be and necessary for something to import, be important, you have to ascribe a kind of usefulness to it. And, um, you know, that, you know, rest or a lunch break is useful insofar as you can actually efficiently do your job better. Um, empathy is useful insofar as it prevents you from getting sued. You know, if, if the patient thinks you're being empathetic, they won't, won't be quite as likely to sue you. Um, and, I think that's that's really the the uh, the question that that was was facing me at the end of that course, and I I, I made a comparison to um, to how I think things really are when we when we are kind of enmeshed in in medicine, and I, I, the the comparison was was really that um, for the most part medicine is really participating in this human side of things. You know, we're we're actually for the most part, trying to change a patient's behavior, for example, when we're um, we're talking about diabetes and diet, um, we're really trying to impress upon them the importance of you know healthy eating, you know lower sugar intake, all these things, um, and um, and in that, I, I I think the comparison I made was 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 Sherlock Holmes and Watson, that in in medical school, and of course. Um, uh, so is it Sir Arthur Conan Doyle um, 
was the doctor and he wrote Sherlock Holmes with this kind of medical thinking that um, Sherlock Holmes takes all these little bits of data and because he has this knowledge behind it, the data isn't just something that's, you know, empty as it is to the rest of us. It's, it's full. It has kind of meaning to it. And he can ascribe meaning to a tattoo or a, a, a tan, you know, um, a tan of a, ro- a, a watch or famously that um, the, the case of the dog in the night um, where uh, he's, he's talking to the, the investigator and he's saying, well, I want to impress or I want to uh, um, understand or I can't remember the exact words, but, you know, the curious t- case of the dog in the night. And, um, and the investigator says, well, you know, the dog wasn't barking. And Sherlock Holmes says, that's what's interesting. The dog was not barking. Um, and I think that kind of... Um, that kind of medical thinking is, is it, uh, sorry, that kind of thinking is medical. That's how we think in, in medicine is, is trying to piece all these things that are and are not there together to form a diagnosis. But, but that's only one side of it. Um, the other side of the story is Watson, who's kind of looking in on this. And he is a, jo- a doctor in this case. Um, but he looks in on it in a human way. He still sees Sherlock Holmes as a person, you know, who is suffering, or he sees um, the, 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 the behavior of people, and he's kind of looking in. And I always thought that, or well, after the course at least, I was thinking, well, Watson is performing the role that a doctor also has to do, you know, relating to other people, communicating, um, being aware of the world around, you know, formulating everything in a way that's understandable to someone looking in. And I think, um, I think that that was the example that you, you immediately messaged me about, <laughs> um, which we didn't end up using in our paper because we couldn't find a space for it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I, I think, uh, I think that's, that that kind of um, that, that was one I was trying to uh, find out. Let's say at that time was what are these what are these worlds that the doctor finds himself between, and you know what does it all mean? How do we how do we understand it? You can see a doctor as a detective trying to solve uh, the mystery of uh, the headache, for instance, or the mystery of the uh, pain in the night. And in that, it has, by the way, uh, Watson, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes is, is often used as a deduction. There's this famous line from him, like... When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Yeah, okay. So that sounds kind of like a, a doctor would could approach a patient, right? Like, uh, yeah, uh, you, have, you have kind of an idea of how likely... I mean, a headache, maybe stress is most likely paracetamol uh, and uh, come back in a week and see if it's still there. But there are also things like a brain tumor is less likely. But if you've eliminated all the other more likely things, then maybe the less likely thing is is there. This kind of the way of thinking like a detective, right? And uh, so are you saying this is how doctors tend to see themselves? And they're missing the Watson figure? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think, um, you know, how doctors see themselves, I think is, is something I'm starting to uncover. Um, and it's really, it's not, not a fun task to do. Uh, it can be quite, quite horrible to, to delve in, into psychology, um, you know, especially, especially the, the Lacanian psychoanalysis. You know, um, it can be quite disconcerting to, to see, uh, you know, these things like obscenity and enjoyment and how these all fit into, into you know, medical practice every day. You know, for instance, why, why doctors tell such obscene jokes um, or, uh, you know, why, why, why is there obscenity in, in medical practice? You know, is it a kind of an outlet for how stressful it is or, or is it really some, some other kind of, um, uh, you know, sub subjective process at work? Um, but I, I think at, at some level, we're, we, we were explicitly taught that we look at and we're, we're, we should be like Sherlock Holmes, you know, seeing things that aren't visible to the symptom in a way, that the symptom is, is a kind of just a signifier, just a floating signifier, you know, it could mean anything, but that the doctor sees behind that just floating thing and, and really makes it part of, of a disease or the absence of a disease, you know, this is, it's precisely something which is not there which, you know, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, it's nothing, don't worry about it, for instance. Um, so that's one part of it. Yeah, I, I think that was the, the part that we were really trained to be. But most of the time, doctors aren't sitting and making complicated diagnoses. Most of the time, doctors are sitting, ordering investigations, you know, writing letters, um, making treatment plans, trying to apply, you know, different forms of knowledge, uh, different, uh, you know, means of treatment. You know, it, it can be quite, it's, it's quite a diverse set of skills as, as that little uh, diagram you posted showed. Um, and we spend very little of our time being Sherlock Holmes and we spend a lot more of our time being Watson, you know, um, trying to, uh, have relationships uh, with other departments, have good relationships with uh, our own department. Um, and, and, you know, that's the, 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 the interest for me was, you know, exactly that. Why do doctors see themselves as, as Sherlock Holmes? Because what Sherlock Holmes does, as, as complicated as it seems, is, is quite easy in a way, because he just focuses on um, what's, what's apparent, what are, what are the things that are useful for solving the task. Yeah. And, um, and Watson's job is quite tricky in that he, he has to manage the human side of this inhuman machine that is Sherlock Holmes and, and, and make it make sense to all of us from the outside reading it, which is a, which is a really difficult task in, in a way. And um, is he also the one, I, I never read Sherlock Holmes, but is he, What's in the one that's telling the story? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's okay. telling the story. What can doctors do with this insight? Well, I, I'd, I'm not sure. That's, uh, that's what I've been trying to figure out. Um, I think, I think being what I, what I'm trying to understand, which has now taken on a, a historical you know, his more historical 
view of things is how this industrialization of medicine, how it's really become quite a formal process, quite a, um, you know, we need to treat numbers. We need to make sure that we get the most amount of people to live the most amount of time. Um, that this, this process is, you know, is going on, that the expansion of medicine is expanding yeah. into all sorts of different directions, you know. And we just mentioned the COVID lockdown. I, I think that was the first time I, I can I can think of that political powers was, were kind of ceded to the medical fraternity as a kind of group of experts. Um, you know, the, the, the industrial, the medical industry is, you know, is becoming quite formidable and has all sorts of different um, ways of, uh, say, influencing society. You know, if you, if you go on any internet website right now, especially, say, something like Instagram, you're bombarded absolutely bombarded with with medical opinions you know use the skin cream you know don't don't is. use uh, sun lotion yeah. don't use sun lotion don't do this um yeah. you know avoid the vaccine take the vaccine yeah. um you know all these you know medicine is right you know in, in, in now that cyberspace is in our pockets yeah. um medicine is you know creeping creeping absolutely everywhere so it's it, it was sort of a it's sort of a difficult question to answer but um, I think it's it's important from a say a philosophical point of view is to really try and find out how it is that medicine thinks yeah what what is what is what is going on in the mind how what is kept implicit what cannot be said what cannot be acknowledged in order for this medical process to go on because um, it's it's becoming absolutely crucial uh, to understanding the world around us. Um, you know, what's really interesting, which is a, a kind of something I'm looking at now is, is how computing um, and medicine have a kind of common ground. Um, you know, the, the, the theory of cybernetics, you know, that we think of a cardiovascular system as like a perfect circle um, and that it has a kind of negative feedback loop. And as soon as that negative feedback loop, loop is disrupted, that it, it compensates in some way, you know, and a, a cardiac physiologist would be able to prattle on for hours about the specific curves and how those curves, you know, model onto negative feedback loops. But that's also how we're starting to see politics at the moment is, is how the um, global, you know, economy in a way runs in a similar fashion. You know, the, the art, the, the heartbeat is um, sort of the New York Stock Exchange, which pumps yeah. out capital. And that capital flows via the arteries of the sea and, uh, and, and keeps this whole circuit going. Oh, that's um, I never realized that, but there's a lot of metaphoric language like uh, a healthy economy, uh, the heartbeat of the, like uh, the middle class is the heartbeat of the economy. Yeah, it's, 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 it's you know, medicine is not just medicine anymore. Um, so I, I think, you know, that unfortunately, a poor junior doctor sitting in, in, uh, 
in the middle of it all is, is not going to solve all these problems with, with philosophical thinking. Um, they're not going to, say, challenge um, uh, complicated systems. They're, you know, they're not going to suddenly come up with a, a new way of thinking about disease. Um, and I, 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 but on the other hand, I, I'm not convinced that we should be encouraging people, you know, make your own small little difference, make sure you're nice to patients, because I think in some way um, we, we have to find, um, we have to find a, a very accurate way of um, dealing with what medical thinking excludes and a very intellectual way because we can't fall into, <laughs> um, you know, a sentimental attitude, you know, just medical practice with the, you know, just a sprinkling of sentimentality and, you know, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, so I, but what I do think is that we, it's more a question for senior doctors, more a challenge for senior doctors, I would think that, um, that they start to realize that they are really in a position of power and um, that senior doctors need to start to understand that they form very much part of a system and they need to be very sure that the system they're perpetuating, the system that is, uh, is either functional or dysfunctional, is, is, uh, is, serving, is serving people in, in the best way that they can. Um, and ultimately, that's that's the question I, I'd like our senior doctors to start asking, not clinical questions, not only um, diagnostic or treatment questions, but to start looking around them and seeing that they're very much part of something that's not just a disease and treatment um, set of oh. protocols. Yeah, so if I hear you correctly, you're saying we, we need to reconsider what the doctor is. and in our time and ask the question again, which is maybe the philosophical part, because there, if you just look at the scientific part, science is often seen as uh, an evolution. So we used to, uh, especially in medicine, you can see it, uh, just in uh, uh, life expectancy, uh, health, they have all these quantifiable measures like health related quality of life. Uh, it's in general, it's gone up. Uh, of course, we could say a lot about this in, in globalization, but let's just speak uh, about uh, like the more uh, the, the, the countries where healthcare is available for, for people, it's gone up. So there on the scientific side, you have like a, a, maybe a house that you're building, for instance, to take cancer. First, we didn't even know what it was. Then at least we started to recognize it. Uh, then uh, now more and more, like you said in, in the beginning, uh, the life expectancy for someone with a certain type of cancer is, is going up. And uh, if you go, uh, if you follow that line, then at one point, like uh, HIV AIDS uh, is not, you don't have to die from that anymore. Well, in the beginning, you, so that's one way of thinking where you are, we are like, getting progressively more uh, enlightened, uh, more knowledgeable uh, about health. Um, the other side of it is that if that is not the whole story, because if that's the whole story, then when you're a junior doctor, you just need to learn that. 
you just need to learn most importantly what do we know today you need a little bit of background about how did we uh, get to learn that uh, which types of types of thinking and you also need to um, be able because it's progressing so you need to be able to basically read uh, scientific articles with new findings and when the patient comes in you don't know it you look in your database and you find out you know uh, like a meta review of uh, how oft, how, how effective is this kind of treatment with this kind of disease right so this i mean this is a whole complicated system in itself it um it's not it's not easy and and just medical training is what six years or something or <laughs> it's a long time and then also when you're a doctor you need to keep learning because we make new discoveries we find out maybe things that we used to think were wrong but the other side is that you're a doctor in this time and that that may mean something different than a doctor even 10 or 20 years ago um yeah. and that's a different kind of thinking and then if i mean we talked about before about stigler about the the so of obviously the uh, health healthcare is uh closely related to technological innovation so we are able to do operations now in large part because of the, the technologies that we have and we didn't have that you know in the stone age we even if we would have the knowledge we would not be able to do it materially so but this technological innovation is speeding up before there was maybe medical innovation every like decade or every century or whatever and now it's like every year you we find out more and more um just look at the corona vaccine right how quickly that was if so much money so many people are working on it it's incredible uh how how that is uh, possible and in large part it's possible because of technology but also information technology exchange of uh information but it also means that if you're a senior doctor now who has been practicing for 40 years or something um you're teaching your your knowledge and your way of seeing medicine to a junior doctor but maybe it means that what was what used to be a doctor when you were doing medical school is not a, appropriate anymore in some sense yeah, um, uh, I would I would agree with that. I think you, you you're opening up quite a few avenues of discussion in, in, with that last that last point. But um, but I think it's important that that as you say, the medicine that we practice now is not the medicine of twenty years ago. Um, the, I mean, where I trained in South Africa, we're still practicing the medicine of, of twenty years ago in some way. But when you come to um, you know, European academic center, it's completely different. You know, it's relying heavily on, on special investigations, radiology. Um, but even, even, even then you could, you know, even in, in medicine nowadays, you could come up with a treatment plan without ever physically seeing the patient, without actual physical presence. Um, you know that that is that is something completely um, completely new and, and raises some ethical questions. You know, we brought up um, uh, 
exactly uh, Levinas, you know, looking into the eye of the other. That's not necessary anymore. A medical process can go can can go on with you know just a table of blood results, um, a series of of scans, and um, someone just going into the room and asking if there's anything you know new with the patient. Yeah, especially um, if you add to that the uh, like smart watches and everything that are able to uh, measure heart yeah. rate and everything like that remotely. Yeah, absolutely. If you want yeah. to speak to the patient, you can do like we are doing now over Zoom. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, it's kind of a dream um, in some ways that, that I think we were having a, in, in, in the early 2000s, that, that we could have these kind of systems that were foolproof, you know, that were just neat, um, objective uh, definitions, you know, ascribing perfectly, you know, the, the nature of the disease and what investing, you know, the, the only question is what investigation to do next, really. Yeah. You know, because the, not, I mean, the doctor is uh, still a person, is subjective, is bias. Bias is a big word in in medicine. So, what if we can remove the human biased, subjective doctor from from the equation? Yeah, I mean, but, but why? So, okay, but why not? Yeah, well, I mean, you could you could remove everything, but uh, at the end of the day, you're still left with the questions. You know, well, if well. If we remove everything subjective, we can remove things like hope. Um, we could remove things like uh, uh, like ethics in a way. We could, if we can, if we can, if we can completely unify um, the well-being of a patient um, with the best provable treatment, we have no need for ethics because. If I have a disease before me, the only ethical thing to do is try and cure it, and if I have um, um the uh, the right treatment that has been ascribed by the data that has been collected extrinsically and objectively and verified um i can uh, i can i have no need for ethics i can just treat the disease um so you know that's obviously a debatable point but that's i think to some degree where some doctors thinking is headed um i would also i would also say that um you know, as much as um, the data is as um, clean or as um, reproducible or um, new drugs are as safe as we can get them, um, they are also made by private companies who um, whose incentive is to make the most marketable drug with the fewest amount of side effects. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and you know the long-term effects of of drugs, uh, the safety of drugs, don't really enter into the equation because generally pharmaceutical companies only make substantial profits in the first few years of a drug being made. So, um, so really, um, we don't we don't live in a dream system. This, the the uh, the outcomes are owned. The some someone owns a stake. Yeah. in these things going well and um well that's that's uh, what we talked about before uh, hiv medication i don't know how it is now but in the netherlands you get it for free because we have uh, uh healthcare insurance yeah but there's different prices in different parts of the world for for medicine 
Yeah. In one country, it's free if you have this disease. In another country, you can only buy it if you're very rich. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the, the question then is, you know, how much does the free medication depend on the profits made in other countries? Yeah. Um, I mean, these are, these are economic questions that can be quite depressing to look into. You know, how much does the free, the free drug um, that's given in South Africa, all our HIV drugs are funded by the U United States government funds. How much of that depends on the profits made by this pharmaceutical industry and drugs um, give, uh, profit, you know, heavily profited from? Yeah, it's all connected, right? So you were reading philosophy when you were around 14 years old, starting with Nietzsche, which is a, a nice way to start philosophy. I think Nietzsche for 14 years old, that sounds about right, by the way. Yeah, it's angsty enough. Yeah. <laughs> so he was very negative about Plato, and but you didn't know who Plato was, so you started to read that. So did you read the cave allegory as well at that time? I actually read that quite you know, further on into my studies, yeah, twenty-three or something. All right. So, were you just uh, was Nietzsche right, according to fourteen-year-old you, when you started reading Plato? Uh, no, I think I think uh, like every critic of every other philosopher, I think uh, there's more to the philosophy. The 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 philosophy under undermines the critique more than the critique undermines the philosophy sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, reading Plato after seeing him criticized was much more interesting. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, as far as Plato's cave goes, um, it's difficult to escape um, the profundity of the allegory of the cave, because, you know, ultimately, um, that's what knowledge wants to do. It wants to understand, it wants to elevate um, you know, human beings want to elevate um, what they what they see um, and find some um, something intelligible and something beautiful and something true about it, um, rather than just be stuck with um, with the the kind of everyday appearances of things. Um, so I would say, you know, I I would say the allegory of the cave was closely tied in with what I was trying to understand was um, what is it that's, what is the grounding of medical thinking? Where does it, where does it stem from? Where, where, where does it say it begins? What's its, what are its aims and what are its principles? And, um, and if we try and understand that, um, we can we can understand where it goes wrong and why it goes wrong and where um, where its limitations are. So ultimately, you know, the question of of uh, of empathy for medical students doesn't become you know why do why do medical students lose their empathy through time, but rather how is it that the loss of empathy is instantiated into medical thinking? Rather, rather that kind of question, and I think that's ultimately the 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 the, the answer to that is is the way out of the cave. How how is it that this medical thinking is grounded? Did that make sense? 
Yes. Quite stupid. How? No, no, no. It's just um, okay. Let me just give you a counterpoint, right? Like, let me give you like a traditional reading of Plato's Cave uh, from, let's say, a, a medical perspective, where you would say, okay, the shadows are uh, the symptoms. Uh, you know, a person has a headache. Then the fire and the statues in front of the fire are maybe like the the disease. I don't. There's probably technical terms for that. But let's say, in this case, uh, it is a brain tumor. Uh, and then out of the cave, you find the mechanisms behind. Uh, uh, so maybe like the the practicing. Uh, so us people, we just see the same symptoms. We see people with a headache, people getting sick. Uh, the doctors, they see, oh, uh, you know, this is maybe the underlying condition that maybe we can treat. And then outside of the cave are the people who understand mechanisms behind cancer and who are able to find uh, like uh, the chemo chemotherapy that works. So there, this is like the underlying mechanisms, how the body works and everything like that. So you go... Um, from the symptoms, the shadows, to reasoning, to the underlying thing. Oh, it must be a brain tumor. And uh, then you go to the science. Uh, and then you, you take this science, you translate it into a treatment, and then the symptoms disappear as well. Yeah. So this is, I think, I mean, just kind of improvising, but that's kind of a medical uh, reading of uh, that is how is it? Do you agree with that reading or would you read? Oh, no, I, I don't disagree. I think I'm just I'm just interested in something slightly different. I would say the doctors are chained to the wall looking at all these appearances yeah. you know, as they manifest as diseases. And, uh, and uh, the, the, when we walk out of Plato's cave, um, I'm not expecting to find a mechanism you know, some material thing causing the disease. Yeah. But I'm interested in how, how it is that, um, um, how do we say, how is it that the thinking illuminates this disease in such a particular way? You know, how is it that we come to ascribe um, disease in this particular, for instance, the, the reason halitosis exists is because of the Listerine company. It's not a medical diagnosis. It was invented by the industry to produce um, sales. You know, Listerine was famously used to treat syphilis at some point and was just changed to a mouthwash without changing the uh, um, formula. And they invented halitosis. So, um, you know, that's that's what I'm really trying to get at. Is what is behind? What is what are these things that we say are really creating these um, manifestations of disease? How how is it that we ascribe disease to some things and not to others? How is it that that we treat depression in the same way as we would treat a cancer with the same kind of forms of thought? Um, is it because we are able to ascribe treatments to those diseases, or is it because we are actually very interested? In, in what diseases actually are. Are they all mechanisms? Do, does, does a mechanistic um, way of describing disease suit all diseases in the same way? Um, or is there something else at work? So really in essence, 
you know, if we step out of the cave, we may not find a mechanism. We, we, may, we may not need to. We may, we may um, find ourselves not having to describe anything mechanistic at all. Um, but we need to step outside the cave to see that. Yeah, so what you say kind of links to the tendency that the uh, biochemical, uh, like bio, biosocial chemical model, I yeah. think it's called. So you, uh, you look at chemical mechanisms, biological mechanisms, but also increasingly social mechanisms behind disease. Um, well, a lot of people have criticized that model and are actually also trying to look for alternatives because it may be useful if if you say well this is uh, you have uh, symptoms uh, there's underlying mechanisms we need the treatment and then it goes away but what if the patient cannot get better uh like in cases of chronic pain for instance or or uh, uh, chronic non-lethal cancer uh or um so are you then just sick for the rest of your life uh or in the cases of where where there's a symptom but they they have they actually have a term, term for it it's called uh medically unexplained physical symptoms if i'm correct so it's when pay, someone has a, like their arm hurts but you can't find a mechanism under underneath it you do brain scans you do all your doctoring stuff you can find out what it is but we do recognize that it exists and that many people have this uh, but the mechanism part is missing. So instead of saying, well, a lot of patients have something that we cannot explain, you say, well, actually, we can explain what they have. They have MUPS, which is the you know short for, or they have ADHD, or they have depression, or these are different ways of saying, well, constructing something like uh, depression, like it would be like a tumor or something reifying it um yeah precisely i mean that's 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 where that's what medicine is 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 looking to do now it's absolutely so committed to a material cause for all its its uh its understanding of the world yeah. that it, it can have a mechanism without a mechanism <laughs> yeah um you know we 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 presume that there will be some kind of mechanism to the degree that we don't even need to know what the mechanism is um, and You're already uh, assuming uh, that if you can find something, then because of what I talked about, the evolution of medicine, there will at one point there's a mechanism that will turn up in the yeah. future. And and look, there's nothing wrong or bad about thinking like this. We just need to keep in mind what what it is that this way of thinking excludes. Yeah. So, what are some of the philosophers that uh, when when things are difficult for you maybe in south africa so uh, yeah. as much as as much as philosophy uh, was a particular interest i never find it found it really helpful you know if something was terrible awful that i experienced in um in in medicine something that really you know keeps you up at night I, for for instance I, I was working um a lot in a in a gang ridden area and i would work a lot in the pediatric emergencies and so you know a lot of pediatric gunshots and uh, you know terrible things you know completely um horrifying 
experiences in, 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 in that sort of part of the world. Philosophy doesn't tend to help all that much. You know, it, you know, if someone dies horribly or a child is, is wounded irreparably, there's no philosophy there. Um, so I would say that, that, that philosophy begins when we start to try and account for these things and try and uh, make it to, to try and understand um, how, how, how these, this, this came to pass, what to do about it. That's really where philosophy starts. Um, not with the the wounded child, but mm. really with the the person who asks, you know, oh, what are we going to do with this wounded child? I would think that's where philosophy starts. You know, why, um, you know, the the say the ideology that takes over. You know, the, either the pure mechanistic thinking, oh, the child is wounded in these particular ways. Let me let me uh, um, let me try and fix uh, fix the particular you know problems that the child has right now or the uh, political philosophy that would take over you know what are the situations that brought this child to be here or the kind of psychological philosophy you know the, the doctor who tries to make meaning out of out of this tries to understand how how to deal with this uh, this uh, horrible instance um, we'd need to examine that philosophically. Unfortunately, philosophy does not tend to uh, be particularly helpful when you're faced with really horrible circumstances, and, and nor should it. Um, I, yeah, I, <laughs> no, no help there, unfortunately. So what do you get from reading it? And um, what, what are some of the philosophers that you're interested in now? So I, I think... Um, I, really still kept an interest in Nietzsche and Heidegger and, um, and uh, you know, the way Heidegger essentially re-examined the whole history of Western philosophy. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a, a cue for, for us that it is possible to re-understand our entire history of how thinking brought us here um, and what it is that we're really thinking. Um, I think that's an important part. Um, right now, I, I've been looking more into in, into the, the the beginnings of modern philosophy, Kant and Hegel, um, and really trying to understand how it is that we need to argue, and how it is that we need to put a case forward for um, for these these problems that we face. That that. For, for a lot of pre-modern philosophers were sort of taken care of, that, that God, the figure of God, was, was the feature of good, all that is good and all that is, uh, you know, beneficial and, and ultimately all that is. Um, and after, you know, this, how Heidegger describes it, the collapse of metaphysics, uh, you know, how, um, you know, we've, we've lost a kind of grounding for our knowledge, a grounds for being, and how philosophy has to investigate those questions and, and what to do now. Yeah, I guess we haven't talked about, as far as I, I can remember, I haven't talked about Nietzsche really uh, in this uh, podcast. So what you just said about uh, we lost a grounding, that's also something that Nietzsche says, right? That, yeah, so, Nietzsche says that. I, I think... Uh, um, where do we find I mean, certainty where do we find the foothold in for instance like in the context of medicine for uh where can we find the definition of what health is 
so that we know what to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that 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 I suppose is is a Nietzschean question, but I think it's a thread that really runs through so much of modern philosophy. I mean, even even through to Marx, um, of course Hegel, and 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 I mean, it's really Kant that uh, Kant with his uh, inspiration from Hume that really started asking, you know, where, where does this knowledge come come from? How do we how do we begin to piece together this thing called knowledge at all? Um, so you know. <laughs> um it's a it's a massive massive series of questions I, I, oh. um yeah I, I think i think nietzsche's nietzsche was my way into philosophy but i i must admit i i haven't i haven't found a space for nietzsche in in in, in understanding um sort of um, medicine and, and the context where we live in um that uh well not as of yet you still have time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so what do, do you think for for people practicing medicine? What is the, you know, if they have, if you have to pick one philosopher, uh, where should they start? Oh, one philosopher. Or two, if you want. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, I think if, if, if anyone was was interested, is uh, is to really start with, you know, back at the beginning with with Plato and Aristotle, um, and if they can get a grasp on 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 how how the Greeks were were thinking, um, and they can they can you know if if you can if you can understand. How, how the questions the Greeks were asking and how those were um, important to them for their own sake, um, not for any particular um, reason, justification, but really just asking questions, you know, why, why are these things here? Why, why is it that you can really start to see um, that a lot of these questions in, in medicine are largely unanswered? We, we, don't, we don't know. Um, we assume so much in medicine, and I think if if you can if you can see that these questions are alive in medicine that that Plato and Aristotle were were answering the um, excuse me asking the uh, the real kind of crux of uh, a lot of questions the public is asking the medical fraternity really come alive. They're, um, I, I would say Plato and Aristotle is, is the place to be. <laughs> Thank you very much for this uh, journey through medicine and Plato's cave. Yeah, so um, people should read, uh, speaking of Plato and Aristotle, your chapter in the, in the book Applied Philosophy for Health Professions Education, which is about Kronos and Kairos. Yeah. Well, I, I think that was a yeah, that's a that that that's a that's an interesting space. Um, I worked with Spain on that one, and uh, if you were interested in in medical education from a philosophical perspective, I, I, um, Spain is a is a really uh, on on the on the edge of of, of some very interesting uh, discussions that are being had. Um, so I think that that chapter in in your in your book um, 
I'm sure you you can post a link to, to yeah. below. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's a, that's an interesting an interesting look uh, that we had into into medicine, um, uh, but it, it's it's quite specific um, in some ways and ultimately extraordinarily general in others. So um, I think uh, yeah, I would I would take a peek in there. Um, I, it was it was fun to write and and I think. Uh, I think it was just, um, I think what was most uh, fun to write about it was how easy it was to find kind of cracks and crevices that philosophy can occupy um, in, in, in med medical education that, you know, are absolutely fundamental to the whole process. Yeah, that, that chapter is really without doing it justice about different conceptions of time, time for performance, as we spoke about, like... Uh efficiency performance the time of your calendar every um hour filled with uh, appointments and the other one is the time for reflection where you don't have actually it's free time it's it's more like time without the purpose we talked about it a little bit with uh, with daniel ross as well the importance of of uh, free time and with Marsha bjornerud she wrote this book uh, timefulness which also uh, leans on these different conceptions of time but I guess that's a, that's a topic we should uh, get yeah. into another time uh, as the, the article that we didn't discuss that we wrote together. But uh, we did another podcast about that, so I can just link that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that the, that chapter just very, may deserve its own, its own discussion at some point in the future. Yeah. Probably deserves its own voice. Great. So, so let's speak again another time. And uh, thank you for now. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for listening. You can find Camilo's publications in the show notes, as well as a link to another podcast episode in which we discuss our publication Because We Care, a philosophical investigation into the spirit of medical education. Go to livefromplatoscave.com for other episodes and ways to support this independent educational project.